Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual, episode 118, Friday, January the 17th, 2020, Mark, and the bushfires continue here in Australia, um, although there has been a little bit of respite, but still, well, a large two bushfires that, that merged into one mega bushfire that's still burning on our New South Wales Victorian border, and um, a lot of devastation elsewhere, and um, one amazing thing is people as i mentioned at our last episode mark um people dig in and dig deep um when when tragedies happen that's certainly um happening here and i'm proud to say our three main sponsors for the podcast have all been contributing and um doug from microchips australia has um decided as he said um to me in an email put our money where our mouth is and they're donating every um every microchip that is sold in january um will be um there will be a donation a percentage of that going to the um bushfire relief and andrew from f10 um, chemical essentials has sent lots of f10 packs out there into the field to help sterilise those horrible wounds and treat those wounds, Mark. And um, also Jen from Specialised Animal Nutrition, the distributor of Oxbow products here in Australia, has um, sent cases of the critical care to help out those those poor animals that have, have managed to survive but are still still struggling with um, all sorts of injuries, Mark. So it's great to great to hear that our... Our great sponsors are helping out, Mark. It's no surprise, though, Brendan. They they are actually supporting us for no good reason. So when there's a good reason, they're going to stick their hand in their pocket. And um, the I know that for like so many people I talk to are searching for ways to be able to help people all around the world and people all through Australia are uh, um, well stunned and and their first natural instinct is to um, uh, is to do something to help to try and put something in place to help and yeah i'm really proud to be associated with those people who do practical and and uh um uh, immediately beneficial things for the animals in the wild so uh, yes and as we discussed off air before we started recording um we will be planning on talking about the bushfires next week as our main topic um unless things go pear-shaped and something happens with the internets and we can't record, Mark, um, but that's the plan for next week. So um, make sure you're listening next week and we'll discuss some of the some of our thoughts about, well, we may even touch on a little bit of politics, not that we talk about politics that much in the podcast, Mark. Um, we sort of hint at it, don't we? Um, and um, we'll talk a little bit about what's well, what's what's happening, and can we recover from this? And gee, um, if my throat sounds a little bit croaky or more croaky than usual, I'm not surprised because, again, as we were talking about before we started recording, um, I was outside this morning doing a little bit of maintenance on the house, and the weather qual- quality here in Melbourne, Mark, was absolutely terrible today. And I think they even reported that it was the worst in Australia and second worst in the world um, at the moment um, today. And it has cleared a little bit, but it was shocking. And um, 
I was um, actually quite surprised that when I briefly went down the shops, I saw numerous people with face masks on, Mark, um, trying, to, trying to protect themselves. What are we going to talk about today, Mark? Well, I th- the first thing I wanted to um, touch on was a review, Brendan. I wanted us to just... We both have seen recently a movie... Um, and uh, and I, th- I thought we might just um, bounce some thoughts around about the Joker movie. What did you think of it, Brendan? The Joker, well, it isn't the Joker, is it? It is just a Joker. And I... <laughs> You're such a parent. I, I absolutely loved this film, Mark. I loved it. And I know, I know it has been polarising, so I will be very interested in your thoughts on it and as you know i've been prodding you and prodding you to go and see it and i think you ended up watching it renting it and streamed it at home was that correct that's correct yeah well i the reason why i loved it is that i think it was a well it fit me it was dark and dark and dreary um, for a lot of it but it it spoke to me a lot about the the, the issues that it brought up about um, society and mental health and um, the lack of support for people with mental health issues and it basically followed the the deterioration of of, um, of one person and that was Joachim Phoenix playing a joker and um, gee it was an amazing um, acting um, well um, it was a performance that um, I think it won him the Oscar um, as well as lots of other awards for that. And um, gee, it was shocking to see how much weight he'd lost for it. And I knew he'd lost about 30 or 40 kilograms um, to do the park and part. And he said it was good because it made him hangry, Mark, um, most of the time <laughs> that he'd get up in the morning and he had so, so few calories. I, I watched him in an interview that um, he was almost fainting and he just got so angry at the world. And I think it fit um, and it made his performance all that much better but um i loved it mark what did you think i was i was um i was in two minds when i first saw it um i i was it made me sad it was really a um a sad movie and it was a it was remarkably complex for you know what essentially is a a um you know one of the uh, superhero that's right um a cartoon come to life style movie um well, superhero movie it, it was remarkably layered and complex but um it was um it wasn't inspiring or it, it as you say it spoke to the the failings of society and um and you know this particular caricature development over um over the course of that deterioration but um yeah i found it a little bit um i don't know heartbreaking well, so did I, and I, I certainly found it disturbing and depressing and, and, as you say, sad is probably a great summary for it. But I think it was an important movie. Um, I, I think it's something that um, people who were thinking they're going to see a superhero film might end up going and seeing it and thinking, hey, um, maybe it's talking a little bit about some of the problems that we need to deal with in society and um oh maybe they're the people who ended up saying oh that that film's a load of crap um i wanted a typical superhero movie um and they didn't get it and uh, perhaps that's why it's been so polarizing but no i thought it was an excellent film and i I think the acting was extraordinary by um, the main character there um so and it was basically um 
a monologue, wasn't it? It was really just one film about this one person with all other minor ca- characters around it. It was just about this one person and their deterioration into into madness, basically. What did you give it, Brendan? Well, I have to give it, considering the, the, how how poor I think most of the movies are these days, I will have to give it a 9.2 mark, 9.2 out of 10. I, I think that's. What about you? I think that's an entirely fair score. I'm not going to disagree with you. I think um, uh, there's not enough movies that um, that slip outside the the uh, you know the, the the dominant paradigm. They try and um, stay with what's successful, and I think it's excellent that they uh, um, that they tried something different, and um, and it does work in its own way. I I I, I reckon yes. it's awesome. Good. And just briefly before we get on to our. Our main topic. Um, did your lovely wife watch it with you? She did, and and there's a we watched it um, between. Uh, it's a long movie. I think. It, yes. Uh, uh, we watched it. We started watching at eight, and so Kate's um, normal uh, time to head off to bed is about eight between eight thirty and nine, and it has to be a very special movie invariably for 90 percent of movies that we begin to watch at eight kate will have to chase the end up at another time um but this movie kept her awake and asking questions so i don't think there can be a higher rating from my good wife excellent well let's jump into the main topic and i have no segue for this one mark but you suggested this particular topic and it's one that's um I'm sure you've done plenty of surgeries for this particular <laughs> problem, and that is foreign bodies in parrots, in particular bezoars. Um, so uh, I think um, we'll do what we typically do when we have an, an avian-type topic and that I will quiz you on the topic and um, you can fire off your words of wisdom back to me, Mark. So, you know, what is a bezoar? I love the way you pronounce it. Um a, um, and I'm sure you're correct, but I've long pronounced it bezoar, bezoar. Ah. Anyway, someone someone should write to us and tell us the correct pronunciation. Um, a bezoar is a um, a fibre ball, a hair ball, maybe uh, some sort of indigestible fibre that's turned into knot um, and uh, ended up in the guts of some animal so um there there are other sorts of uh, bezoars but the one i wanted to talk about today is one that i see surprisingly commonly in avian practice and it, to be honest it's a little bit distressing that i do see it so often because um at least a proportion of them which we'll talk about later are a very, very serious and often um, life-affecting, sometimes life-ending problem. So, um, so yeah, I thought it was a good idea for us to touch base on this topic, Brendan. Let's jump into bezoars, Mark. I've just looked it up, and, yeah, um, the most common pronunciation is bezoar, so um, I stand corrected with this, um, and I will play <laughs> some of the other pronunciations as um, – as, um, I put put myself on pause while you were answering some of the questions. Um, so, typically, um, are they always? Um, what percentage of them would you suggest are just clumps of of, of the guns that you um, that you mentioned, or do we get all sorts of things in there that can end up a um, causing a blockage? 
Well, that's an interesting question because I think like many of these sorts of things, they're a multifactorial um, event. Um, we definitely uh, have a process where the, um, the guts don't move normally. So some birds who maybe don't have normal contractions, they're more likely to get them. But for most of our normal parrots who are the sorts of animals who would, you know, tear shreds off plants and drop things around the place and um, and generally make a mess, they're pretty good at um, passing what they swallow. And they definitely will um, swallow some indigestible fibre in small amounts along with the, um, the more digestible foods they eat. But they don't, as a general rule, I don't see significant numbers of wild birds with this problem. It's largely a captive bird problem. And I think the key thing, uh, the key contributing factors is access to artificial fibres, to, you know, things like nylon or um, one of the poly fleeces, those sorts of um, artificial fibres. Access to those um, definitely makes for a problem. So is that why you particularly want to talk about it in parrots? So have you seen it in non parrot species of birds? No, I have not. Um, and so most of the non-parrot species that we would see would be the passerines, which mm, seed-eating birds, maybe some of the uh, soft-billed birds, but they're unlikely to have the same degree of exploratory and investigative behaviour that parrots do. Um, and so even when they do collect um, indigestible material fibre, they might collect that for making a nest or some such, um, but they're unlikely to ingest it. Whereas parrots, and particularly nesting parrots and particularly female parrots, um, they will definitely, uh, um, you know, try to perfect their environment. Um, and I think there's this strange thing that happens, particularly with um, rainbow lorikeets, uh, that they, they probably get multiple um they they get stimulation of several different sorts when they perform this behavior they um they definitely get a good sensation that they're tidying up their environment um, and particularly those reproductive females will get an endorphin release as a result but i also think it mimics some of the allopreening that these birds do and while it's not directed to a companion, I think they also get um, those positive neurotransmitters squirting into their brain when they do it because it mimics some of the sensations of alloprening. So I think there's some powerful addictive qualities to this. And so when birds, uh, we particularly see it commonly in cockatiels and rainbow lorikeets, when those birds have access to those indigestible fibres uh, and the two primary sources are um, you know, shrouds, uh, maybe a blanket or something that's been tossed over the top of the cage at night to provide um, darkness and insulation. Um, and the damn things called happy huts. Now, I hope I don't get us into legal trouble with a commercial name, but um, the, the um, triangular-shaped tubes um, that uh, that are sold in many pet stores as nest sites for birds. Um, their polyfleece fibre are a very, very common source of these fibres that trigger the problem in birds, and I think um, we should do without them in our captive birds, Brendan. 
do without triangles. Well, that's an interesting one. I'll have to write that one down, Mark. Um, so what are the signs of a bird, a parrot, that has has one of these bizarres in them? Well, there's there's two important points to make. The first one is that the bezoars locate in two. They can be located in two spots. The first one is the crop, the first sort of dilation of the esophagus where uh, food is stored, um, and the second one um, is the is the um, the first of the two stomachs, the proventriculus. Now, both of those locations will initially the bird will just be off. It'll just intermittently feel seedy and not want to eat as much. But as the bezoar gets bigger and um, starts to... Uh, the centre of these bezoars provides an excellent anaerobic environment for large numbers of bacteria to build up, and they elaborate toxins which tend to run the bird down and probably play a role in... Um, you know, the the contractility of the gastrointestinal tract. And then as they get really big, they eventually obstruct the the uh, um, crop or the, the proventriculus that they're in, and then the birds display those uh, characteristic signs of um, absolute obstruction, namely uh, regurgitation, and, and, uh, and they start to look pretty awful pretty quickly. The funny thing about some of those birds, Brendan, is that they... they I think the shape of the bezoar can act as a plug and shut them off completely, and then it can shift. And so the birds will often have temporary recoveries, but inevitably the bezoar gets bigger and bigger and eventually does one final block off and the birds can't pass anything through that. Uh, so block. are these... So are these seen acutely then at that, at that, at that stage when it's um, finally built up to that to that point and that's when it's presented with with the typical client who brings their their parrot in my parrot is sick and it's um in a lot of distress or do you see clients bringing them in to you earlier um when they're just not quite right and they haven't quite got to the stage you were talking about it's about um uh, one to three, about 25% of our clients, will, we will get to see them in the malaise stage before they've become obstructed. But I would say nearly three quarters of them are, um, are, are cases where the birds acutely reached the break point um, and they're in deep trouble. They're not getting any food past that uh, bezoar um, and they are re- actively regurging. Um, and obviously they're really hungry, um, so they keep going to their food and water um, and, uh, and you know, um, trying to get some nutrition and hydration past the plug. Um, but um, very often that doesn't happen. They build up and uh, start regurging again. And do virtually all of those just regurgitate that that food, whatever they've been trying to, to um, ingest there? Um, do any of them, have you ever seen any of them where they regurgitate or manage to expel a little bit of it or it's such a solid massive um, bezoar there that that bezoar cannot break up um, and and be spat out um, through the mouth? I've I've never seen one. um, I've seen one come out the mouth, but the only way to – we'll talk about getting them out of the mouth in a moment, but um, but I've never seen a bird, uh, while they'll vomit quite a lot, the bezoar is too big for them to to actually get out. Um, And so often um, there's no way – 
um, but intervention to get it out. One, it just reminded me of one thing, Mark, for uh, um, vets who are not experienced with seeing birds at all. Can you just briefly talk about um, something that may be regurgitated um, or, or brought out from a, from a raptor um, that's regarded as potentially normal after a feed that um, an inexperienced veterinarian may consider that, hey, has it just brought up a bezoar? Well, that's a, an excellent point too. And it's not just raptors. Some um, nightjars yes, do it as yes. well. And um, they produce pellets. The indigestible components of the prey item will recirculate in the um, uh, the mainly the proventriculus, um, and then at regular periods those um, carnivorous birds will uh, vomit up the or regurgitate the, um, the indigestible contents. And those pellets are they're actually really useful research tools and there are now um, dogs that are trained um, to uh, um, smell those pellets out so that uh, many of the more cryptic Carnivorous birds can be. Uh, we can learn about what they're eating and where they are, um, where they're sort of, um, what space they're occupying in um, in particular environments. So there are definitely birds yes. who will produce those pellets normally, uh, but these um, and it's it's probably a good point to make the, um, you know, regurgitation means to bring up con for us. I know you're an anatomic pedant. Um, regurgitation is to bring up things that have come from the esophagus. And once uh, food gets to the stomach um, and it's brought back up, that's vomition, that's vomiting. Um, but birds have this really unfortunate thing where food is stored in the crop, so which is a, an expansion of the, um, of the esophagus. And so they are... Um, regurgitating the contents of the crop but um, when they regurgitate contents of the crop say it's got an obstruction and they're regurging the contents of the crop those birds it, it's um, it's not the voluntary production of something that the bird knows is coming up so if a bird is feeding its young or producing a a, a, a pellet uh, um, uh, if they're a raptor then they'll do that typical head rolling they know it's coming up it's gross but they bring it up and drop it out whereas the birds who uh, bring up involuntarily contents of the the um, crop um, those birds will uh, spray it everywhere and shake their head around and they'll get sticky crop contents all over their head. They look a mess, Brendan. So I think while they're both regurgitating, um, in uh, in birds we'll often talk about, even though it's anatomically inappropriate, we'll often talk about that involuntary one as uh, a mission and the birds will have it all over their heads. Yes. So that bird is brought into you, that parrot is in your consult room or in a another veterinarian's consult room, Mark, how do you diagnose that bezoar? How do you know it is that? Um, are there particular diagnostic steps we do or it's pretty obvious in the consult um, with experience being able to pick these up? Well, there's, as you would expect, given that there are two locations, there's two answers to that question. The first one is that particularly with cockatiels where we will commonly find um, the bezoar in the crop, it's palpable. You can you can feel it, um, and um, that makes the diagnosis in the um, consult room. It makes it uh, um, an entirely 
possible thing to do. And I think for that reason, it's a good thing to get in the habit of handling those birds and feeling um, the crop, making sure you carefully palpate it. Sometimes it helps to uh, wet the feathers down with a little bit of, um, I just use tap water. Some people use uh, ethyl alcohol, um, but um, uh, once the feathers are wetted down, you can visualise the crop and much more easily palpate it. And if you do that a lot with normal birds, you will definitely pick up those birds that have a bees or in their crop. Um, they sometimes can be confused with absolute crop stasis where um, there's material in the crop that... Um, that's become dilated, um, but generally speaking, they have a different texture. The putty-like texture of crop stasis is not the same as the, um, f you know, it feels like a fibre ball when you touch it. Um, so usually you can make that diagnosis. The difficult ones, um, and lorikeets predominate here because they have a relatively small crop, um, is that the bezoar in those birds tends to form in the proventriculus. And the only way to diagnose those is by imaging, Brendan. So what do we do? We take them to a plain radiograph first, Mark? Is that what we do or not? Um, look, the, one of the difficulties with these cases for me is that each anaesthetic is a risk because the birds will um, uh, will regurge and so potentially can aspirate. It's always good with these birds to protect the airways, but even sometimes that can be, um, you know, troubling and difficult. So um, we really work hard to anaesthetise them as few times as possible. So with many of these birds, we might... Um, instill a contrast medium into the bird at the first instance and not do initial survey radiographs. Um, and the contrast medium um, passes relatively quickly through down to the crop and maybe only between 10 and 20 minutes it will be in the intestine. Um, and even just earlier this week, we had an um, excellent case in terms of uh, diagnostic um, utility in that um, the... Uh, um, the filling defect in the proventriculus was clearly apparent um, on the second radiograph that we took and, uh, and that um, certainly saved um, a whole lot of um, more complex uh, decision-making and diagnostics. Is there any particular contrast agent you select there, Mark, or any of the... <laughs> You ask the best questions. Um, for many years, um, we just used um, barium. We would just get the powder and uh, mix it up into a paste and um, and uh, inject that using a crop needle, uh, instill it into the crop. Um, but we have had one or two cases where the birds have quite, you know, unsurprisingly regurgitated, um, and uh, with barium that only takes a little bit to be aspirated and then we have a, um, a genuine disaster. Barium in the lungs is in birds is just as bad as barium in the lungs in mammals. Um, so we've routinely been using um, uh, the iodine-containing intravenous contrast medium. Um, I think one of the iohexol might be one of the trait names. And, yes. um, and we use a much smaller volume. So we might... You know, if we're feeding, if we're providing fluid, for example, to a bird, we might aim for something between um, 
you know, two and a half and five percent of their body weight. A baby bird, you could uh, comfortably fit maybe ten percent of their body weight into the crop. But for these birds, you really need to um, dial down the crop volume uh, for the obvious reason that it's likely to be brought back up if it irritates the crop. So we're talking about volumes of about half a percent for a, a hundred gram cockatiel. We're talking about um, something about half a mil to go into the bird. Okay, so by the sound of it, the vast majority of them, you've you've virtually reached your diagnosis either through the clinical examination or that contrast um, radiography. Um, are there any that sort of skip through that or escape that um, diagnosis that you have to narrow down with other other techniques? And if so, what would you be doing? Well, it's it is. <laughs> There are very few other techniques to use, and we definitely have. So the 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 one that um, that I would probably make apparent to our listeners is that um, I think it's good to have in mind the possibility of doing a um, a laparotomy on these birds. Laparotomy is going to be part of your treatment when you confirm, particularly you know the the birds that have a or in the proventriculus, the only way to get that out is to do a, uh, a laparotomy and a ventriculotomy to get the damn thing out. Um, and there are times we have had cases of much-loved birds where we were very, very suspicious that that was the case. And just as in mammals, an exploratory laparotomy is both a um, treatment procedure but can also be a... Um, a, a uh, a process that allows you to come to a diagnosis. And one of those birds um, did in fact have a, a, a foreign body in its, um, proven, in its proventriculus um, and uh, it was, um, but it wasn't a bezoar, it had swallowed something um, that was radio-opaque. So that uh, diagnostic procedure did allow us to solve that problem. Okay, so let's jump to the treatment, the actual surgery, Mark. Um, is it, is it a complex process there? And um, well, how many of these? It sounds like you've got vast experience with this particular condition. So, <laughs> how many of these would you, on average, do in a year, for instance? Oh, we we would see um, at the, at this since um, in the warmer months when the birds are more reproductively active, we'd see two a week, um, and for the rest of the year we would probably you know maybe one a week or one a fortnight. So I would be saying um, seventy to one hundred birds a year would have this problem that go through our hospital. That's a lot of birds. So how do we fix it? There's three ways, Brendan. Three ways. The first way is um, for those uh, birds that you can feel a mass in the um, in the crop, in the ingluvies, um, you can use alligator forceps to add and treat the alligator forceps as a crop needle. Slide them into the conscious bird. You want the bird to be conscious if you're doing this because you're going to bring up a little bit of fluid and you want the birds... Um, uh, um, glottis to be able to close um, and with a little bit of manipulation and um, and uh, a little bit of um, good fortune you can latch onto the uh, these all with the, the alligator um, forceps and um, and literally drag it out now this doesn't always work but I tell you what there are you know there's a few feelings that we get as veterinarians when we're able to um, 
unblock a cat, when we um, stop a, uh, a dog with um, hypocalcemic tetany from shaking, this, when you get one of these out, you feel that exact feeling, Brendan. And sorry, yes, no, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. Keep going. You're on a roll here, and and we're on a timeline. I know we're on a timeline. Um, so the ones that we can't drag out per Oz, um, using the forceps, um, then we that are in the crop, um, then we have to um open the crop up, and this is a an excellent procedure because um it is very safe, um, and the crop is a wonderful organ that um is relatively easy to access. You can make an incision, separate the feathers, um, wet the skin, make a skin incision, then an incision through the crop. You're in there, you can get it out. Um, You just close up in two layers um, and the birds generally do really well. The crop's one of those organs that heals up really well. There are generally few complications from that surgery. The birds that are a problem are those ones that have it in the proventriculus because you are unlikely to be able to get it out any other way than opening them up. And the surgery is not um, horribly complex. It obviously requires um, the usual sorts of tools that, um, that you know, uh, vets who do surgery on very small things need to have at hand. Um, but a small incision, um, often uh, you might need to cut through one of the ribs to gain access to the um, left side of the bird just over the top of the proventriculus into the cranial, uh, the left cranial abdominal air sac. Um, Then you need to catch the proventriculus, raise it up to the incision and sew it to the edge of your incision so that there's no chance of leakage before you make an incision and remove um, the bees or any other foreign body that you're trying to get out. And then carefully with very fine sutures, close the incision you've made, cut the the sutures to the skin and let the uh, proventriculus sink back down into the abdomen. Now, the only bad thing about the proventriculotomy um, as a procedure is that um, it is an organ that uh, probably has a slightly higher rate of dehiscence in terms of wounds um, than other organs. So um, we definitely have had excellent surgeries where we've removed the bezoar and uh, and occasionally birds will still um, have problems with the surgical site and not make it. So post-operative post-operatively, Mark, what, what medications are you putting these birds on? Well, the main ones we put them on are, are pain relief. It is, um, in my experience, one, a relatively um, painful um, experience for the birds and one of the surgeries that they do find uncomfortable. And I also think that they don't return to their food as quickly if the you know if they're suffering pain from that part of their intestine. And, of course, we cover them with antibiotics. They are... Um, uh, that while we're doing our best to make sure that the body cavity isn't contaminated, um, even relatively minor infections at the surgical site on the proventriculus can be a reason for the wound to dehiss. So we generally have them on a broad spectrum antibiotic. Um, and for a day or two, we might also uh, dose them with um uh, metoclopramide to encourage uh, appropriate contraction from the mouth through the crop 
and the two stomachs and into the intestine of the food that we can get into them. So I think you are saying that these do fairly well. So success rate with them is, is pretty high, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. Look, I, I, it's not as high. The success with the, the ones that are in the crop is generally pretty good. And it largely depends on how debilitated they are when they come in, I think. Um, but um, we have a pretty good success rate with the crop ones. The ones that are in the proventriculus, I think the ones we take to surgery, um, there's, you know, the majority of them now I would feel confident that we're going to get through. Um, but um, it's, an, you know, a lot of the clients that we have uh, get to that point and um, and pull up stumps. So it's a commonly a reason for people to go, look, I know what the problem is now. I know there's risks and we're going to consider humane euthanasia in this bird. What do we do to stop it, Mark? We don't have triangles. What else? No happy huts. No, no happy huts. Um, and I think um, the, there's... Uh, you allude to several other things that we should do. Um, I think it's a critical thing for us to make sure the birds uh, are adequately exercise, both in terms of their general fitness um, and in terms of their um, specific gastrointestinal fitness. So um, highly uh, um, diets that are high in starch and simple seeds are less likely to encourage the healthy contractions of a gut that are likely to get small bits of fibre to pass. So making sure they've got a, an appropriate species, appropriate diet is really important. Um, and physical exercise, making sure the birds are not sedentary and making sure that they actually move around a lot. And, uh, and I think flying is a really important thing for this process. Um, and, uh, and of course, we've talked about before the process of foraging, encouraging the birds to um, search and explore their environment um, that, uh, and ensure that environment that they're searching through has very, very few indigestible fibres, no carpet, no towels, no um, uh, bed sheets, no flannel, and definitely no happy hearts, Brendan. Yes, I had myself on <laughs> mute. I did have myself on mute and I'd started doing a, a little outro there, but um, I have to start again. Yes, it's well, it's a great little summary of that, Mark, because it gets back to what we always talk about. It's feeding the correct things and it's environmental enrichment and it's managing and, and making sure we have the right right the right hides, the right substrates, the right toys um, in the enclosures for all our species that we see, not just not just the avian ones. And and yes, it's avoiding Happy Huts and Mark, yes, I hope there's no um, copyright on Happy Huts because we might, um, we, you might be um, having a, a call or two um, from the Happy Hut um, registra- um, lawyers. Um, but, um, well, you've got to call a spade a spade, don't you? Well, well Mr. Outro's here. We better go. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.